Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We think about the pandemic, the economic disruption was broad, it was deep, but perhaps it was felt even more uh poignantly by some of the small businesses out there. Let's get some color on that story. Carol Lee Mitchell, head of small business strategy for Bank of America, joins us. Carol Lee, thanks so much for taking the time here. Just give us a, you know, we've all seen the vacant stores, the businesses that have gone out of business. Give us a, just kind of a sense that we have a little bit of a perspective now on how small businesses have been dealing with the economic fallout of the pandemic. Sure, happy to, delighted to be here. So, Small business owners going into 2021 were quite optimistic. Vaccine rollout, consumer demand and spend was high, and, and quite frankly, the small business owners were just ready to get back at it. As we started to settle into 21, started to suddenly experience uh, labor shortages, operation challenges, you know, supply chain issues, and started to temper optimism just a hair. And I say just a hair because while that was all happening, consumer spend was still remaining. And as we go into the holiday season, um, I, would, I would say that our business owners are telling us that they're still quite optimistic. Why? Many of them expect revenue and sales to increase. Um, many of them have made operation changes. And I think this is an important thing to note. One of the gifts of the pandemic that occurred is that the enablement of digital technologies and solutions to drive commerce electronically. So this is just being able to pay for your pup, you know, cupcake uh, with a debit card or credit card and or Dell is something that didn't exist prior to the pandemic. So enabling business owners to drive commerce virtually, hybrid situation and or in person is something that's going to give them the flexibility to maintain. And so we're very optimistic. It's also, you know, supported by internal data. Deposit volume is at a record high. Our small business owners are coming to us saying, I believe in my future. I want to expand. I want to take a loan. I'm going to invest in my business. Growth numbers are pre-pandemic levels prior to 2019. It's really been uh, a nice thing to see. Carol, the loan uh, story is a fascinating one because we've heard – Big bank CEOs complain about a lack of loan growth. Are smaller businesses going to go out and borrow and invest? Our data is suggesting that our 
our small business owners are currently borrowing and investing, in fact, at record levels prior to 2019. Um, and so from our perspective at Bank of America, this has been a really positive sign. Um, again, this is also coupled with the fact that deposit balances are strong, so cash position is strong, optimism is great, sales and revenue, again, we can see the sales and revenue coming in stronger stronger than where we were clearly you know, 2020, but definitely in some cases even prior to 2019. And so uh, the data points would suggest that we're in a pretty pretty decent place. Carolee, I know you guys have done uh, work looking at uh, women owners of small businesses. How have they fared? Maybe better, worse than maybe the average small business? Sure. Important to note that in 2020, of all of the new businesses that were started, over half were started by women business owners. So this is something that we have been watching and monitoring. Over 90% of women business owners are telling us that stress and mental health and wellness are at the top of the list of concerns for them. And it is really something that has been kind of looming even prior to the pandemic, but this is now the number one concern. And also feeding operation changes, how they work with their employees, how they provide benefits. Many of our women business owners, in fact, over 48% took a pay cut to enable and keep their employees on on the books and also happy, uh, giving them wellness benefits, more flexibility and time. And so I think there's this recognition that, yes, it's, it's far more stressful than it was pre-pandemic. But what's been a gift is that there's this recognition that there's, there's issues to be addressed and there's solutions being designed and developed to help sort of the people you know, they're working long hours and enabling and opening up their businesses so that we can drive commerce forward. I think it's interesting. I wonder if um, women do better at opening businesses, if they have more longevity in this kind of situation, because I imagine men have a lower pain threshold. <laughs> is well, that I mean, is that just well, my mom talking through me <laughs> or is that that's probably true, right? Well, the, there, there are a couple of things. I think women tend to start businesses that are just addressing needs of people in the community. And 60% of our local economy, our local uh, economy of our community is driven by business owners. So one, you know, building something that serves a purpose and need in that local environment is, is a good thing. And number two, we see that the vast majority of our women business owners, north of 40%, feel more connected to the community than their male counterparts. And it's sort of a symbiotic relationship. They feel more connected to them. They also give back to them. And this relationship gives them a little bit of a platform to say, regardless of what happens in the macro environment landscape, I know that, you know, I, I feel pretty safe in my community to kind of do what we need to do, you know, build a business, drive commerce and drive sales. And, you know, we've seen that it's been really um, a, a positive thing, especially during such challenging times like 2020. You know, Carolee, when you walk by any small business on any Main Street USA, they all have one sign in the window, help wanted. What is your survey data kind of and your respondents, what are they telling you about how they're trying to manage through this challenge? It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, many of our um, you know, women business owners, in fact, north of 20 percent, 
are saying that they plan to hire. That's up from 9% uh, just last year. But I think that you can't have a conversation about hiring without sort of retaining. And I think many of our business owners are focusing more on retaining employees. And that's where some of the wellness benefits and that's where some of the conversations around, hey, how are you doing? How can we make this less stressful coming into play? Um, Our business owners are mindful of that. And so while they're in the same pool sort of competing to hire great talent, um, what I'm finding is that our business owners are so thoughtful about maintaining their existing employees and making sure that the ones that they have are taken, taken care of. Carolee, I we've seen consumer confidence drop, and the last reading was better, but um, there had been a lull, I guess, in the numbers. And I wonder what you make of that, what small businesses should make of that. Because it does seem like consumers have money saved up, and you know we're slowly opening up, we're, uh, we're getting back to business as usual, and there's so much demand for products that it's weird to see confidence drop like that. I guess it's inflation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I mean, the confidence is, is the, the confidence thing is interesting because confidence and spend, I think one of the things that we're seeing is that, yes, while we're monitoring confidence and it's ticking down just a, just a hair, what we do see is the corresponding spend volume shifting to things that are more sort of essentials, you know, things that are enabling, um, you know, our, our consumers and our small business owners to kind of, you know, feel better about their current situation. Our business owners um, would suggest that because, again, they operate within their local community, the support and the rallying that they're feeling from consumers has been tremendous. And so, you know, your, your listener's decision to not buy that cupcake from a big box but walking over to that local bakery, that's happening more and more and more. And so, you know, our business owners feel like even though confidence may be down just a hair, um, the local community support has been tremendous. And I think that's going to continue on into 2022. Um, and again, the unknown variables of things that could potentially happen, not being prepared, I think is one contributing factor. I think going into 2022, you're going to see that a lot more people are prepared for the unknown. And, and I think that that level of preparation will help us you know, think about spending and engaging in ways that we used to in the past a bit more freely. Carolee, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you joining us and sharing the uh, results of your survey. Carolee Mitchell, head of small business strategy uh, at Bank of America there. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. All right, now let's get uh, back to the markets. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, joins us on the phone from Madison, Wisconsin. What a great town. Um, And he's a portfolio manager there, the Plum Balanced Fund. Tom, um, we are, today's not the, the, uh, I guess, the, the worst day to be an equity investor. We're up 
again to 45.85 right now. So hovering near record high on the S&P 500, even though um, we're all worried about supply chains and labor shortages and inflation. What gives? Well, you know, uh, it, it is interesting because the earnings are coming out, uh, and right now we've had uh, basically over half of the market cap of the S&P is re- reported. Oh, uh, there are three things that are really emerging as trends. Uh, with 75% of the companies beating their projections, uh, growth stocks uh, have been beating on revenue, uh, about 18 versus 12 so far. But uh, value stocks have been beating on earnings growth, uh, 40% possibly compared to about low 20s for typical growth stock. So in other words, uh, the cyclical economy, cyclical growth is being beating secular growth in terms of earnings growth and in stock performance. So um, we're seeing this despite these issues that you just mentioned as really a tale of which companies are dealing with the supply chain disruptions and the cost inflation. If they're beating and doing well, uh, they're getting rewarded. But if they do a bad job, man, they're getting punished. Tom, how long does this cyclical play work? I mean, I think a lot of investors, it's been a long time since value has been a good performer. It's been a long time since small cap. And a lot of investors are just unsure how long this cycle lasts. How do you think about that? This is there's a very po- strong possibility that this is just a blip because we have had in the last 12 years different periods of time when the value stocks have outperformed. I think once we start to get to tougher comparisons, once we overlap the pandemic, we're, we're going to start to look again at which companies are true leaders and are combining both cyclical growth with these really powerful digital growth trends that we've been seeing for the last uh, dozen years. So in terms of uh, if I have new money to put to work, um, is it is now a time to still put it in equities? Is there any other game in town? Uh, it is very difficult. You know, managing a balance fund, we look at uh, bonds also. And, of course, with interest rates at these levels and uh, the talk that the Fed is going to start to uh, their, end their tapering, so we'll start to see um, pressure on interest rates. It makes you a little bit cautious about what types of fixed income items to own. You've had an incredible spike in some commodity prices, but we've also seen those show some signs of topping. So for us, it looks like good quality common stocks. Uh, they're still there. Uh, they're hitting new records, makes people anxious. But I started out when the S&P was about 70. Um, so Seven zero. now that it's uh, 45 times higher, <laughs> we've hit lots of hot, new highs. Tom, how about energy? You mentioned commodities. You know, we've got uh, WTI crude at north of $82 a share. How do you think about en- energy stocks here? They, they, you know, they were so depressed. I mean, again, back in the early '80s, they were 35 percent of the S&P. Now they're, they, last year they bottomed out at about three. Um, so there's a possibility they could still run for a while, but uh, obviously there's some real alternatives and the political pressure on them. So we've been cautious. We haven't been playing that because uh, we think that there's a fair possibility that once supply and demand get a little bit more aligned that there's still going to be those political pressures on energy stocks. 
Is supply and demand starting to get more aligned now? I, I talked to Herbert DCO Volkswagen this morning. He said month after month, it's finally starting to get better with chips. We heard the same from Stellantis and Mary Barra. Is that um, is there an end in sight to these problems? Well, it, it's going to be like uh, the pandemic. It's going to be something that's going to be volatile. It'll move both, both ways. But yes, it is. The trend is going to speed towards getting an alignment between supply and demand, and that'll reduce some of these price pressures. Hey, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, getting a few minutes of your time. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer of the Plum Funds, uh, joining us on the phone from Madison, uh, Wisconsin. And again, a strong, strong move here to the market. We have the uh, S&P up about eight-tenths of one percent, NASDAQ up, up almost one full percentage point. And again, you ever been to Madison? Earnings, yeah. What's that? You ever been to Madison? I have. Great town. Great town. What a town. Yep. I loved every minute of my time there. <laughs> big, big. There's actually a big, big money, uh, uh, institutional investor money in Madison. Strong funds, which is now part of it. Uh, I guess Wells Fargo, the Wisconsin Investment Board, lots of reasons to go uh, to Madison, Wisconsin. I was just hanging out with college kids. Yeah. I was in college. I, was this was all business for me going into the Midwest. Now I want to get to the global CEO of Lincoln International to give us the uh, his outlook for the landscape of uh, M&A uh, in markets right now. Rob Brown joins us to talk about this amazing amount of activity that we've seen, um, not just in the U.S., but globally. And Rob, we haven't seen, well, there have been a number of giant deals um, that we've talked about that haven't really gone through. It seems like there's so many smaller and medium-sized deals that we're going to hit another record in 2021. What do you think? Yeah, I I totally agree with that. The engine really of the M&A market is... um, what you would call the middle market or the private capital markets and driven in large part by private equity, venture funds, all the institutional capital that has been raised and put to work really over the last decade. Um, And I think this year in particular, there's uh, you, you, you had this backdrop for a few years where there's more capital raised that wants to be put to work in buying companies or sitting on the balance sheet of large corporates than there are high-quality companies to buy. So this capital imbalance has been around for a while and I think will continue for several years. This year, it's been intensified because there were several deals in several sectors, many deals that were COVID-affected last year that likely would have got done last year that are getting done this year. And then in the U.S., um, the fear over increases in capital gains rates has pulled deals that maybe left to their normal gestation would have gotten done next year or the following year being pulled into this year. So, but by the way, you, 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 by the way, you recently have been named global CEO, and you know, on the one hand, congratulations. On the other hand, wow, there's a lot to deal with right now. I mean. Uh, when you when you move into a new position like that, I guess you got to take stock and look at what's going on. Um, and there's so many, it seems like, question marks. There's so much um, foggy visibility because of the end of the pandemic. Are we in a new world? How do you see it? Yeah, it, it's a really good question. Uh, you know, I will say from a global standpoint, and you touched upon this in your opening remarks, um, this, this really um, – explosion in the M&A market is not just a U.S. phenomenon, it's global. Uh, as I think about, do I think we're moving into a new paradigm? I, I don't 
think so. I think as we go into next year, we're still going to be, um, you'll see a bit of a pullback in the market because, as I said, there'll be less COVID recovery deals. And you won't have, I think, you won't have, who knows, with what goes on in Washington, but you won't have this tax-driven pressure in the U.S. You will still have a market where there's more capital raised than there are companies to buy. I think there are a few um, clouds on the horizon right now. Whether those clouds dissipate or become storms, time will tell. I think one of those clouds is inflation. Um, you know, you have many people, uh, you know, there's people that have been, you know, they're, they're 25, 30 years in their career. They've never really dealt with inflation. So if we do see inflation in a way we haven't seen it before, there may be a pause. Um, my sense is that'll be transitory, and then there'll be, here's how this is going to affect my business, here's how this is affecting the capital markets. I think the other um, uh, cloud on the horizon is China, right? There, there is uh, a slowing of growth in China. It's a massive market. It's having effects on supply chains here. We're seeing that. Is that going to dissipate or is that going to get worse? So, again, I, I'm not overly concerned about those things right now, but I think those are things that have to be monitored as you think about how much longer can this M&A boom continue. That's kind of where I want to go, Rob. It's, it seems to me one of the risks in this M&A marketplace is too much capital chasing too few deals, and I'm thinking particularly from the private equity side, given all the dry powder they have there. How do you think about some of the valuations that are being paid, potentially the risk of overpaying uh, for assets in the, in the name of getting capital deployed? Yeah, I, I think, interestingly, I think that sentiment has been around for probably the last three or four years because there was this step function in valuations um, driven, I agree with you, driven by capital availability. But it's not just capital availability in the private equity side of it. If you look at all the private debt funds that have been raised, right? Yep, so the point. lenders willing to lend at high multiples gives comfort for the equity holders to put equity, uh, higher equity checks in it. And so, to me, I think, I think most deals are priced for perfection. They're not priced for something going wrong or not hitting the forecast in almost every sector. So there is risk when things are priced to perfection because it's very rarely that the future plays out perfect. The question, though, is going to be how are the lenders going to react if things pull back? And interestingly, in COVID, when COVID hit, and this may or may not uh, portend what's going to happen in the future, there was a belief when businesses pulled back, when the capital markets tightened up for a quarter, that the lenders were going to get aggressive and they were going to start forcing things. The lenders actually showed a high level of patience. Now, that may be that they were so overwhelmed by the entire economy stopping on a dime. So to me, the, the question of what does that mean for the future, it's going to be, are the lenders going to work? With private equity groups, are these private equity groups going to support companies that maybe need help if there is a recession and things pull back? But but the risk of things being priced to perfection, it's there. And the the risk of a pullback, you know, obviously not um, total stoppage like we saw during the, the lockdowns initially, but the risk of a pullback in China is real. That Markets are increasingly worried about it, even though we don't really see it in equities. I totally agree with you, I, and, and, and there's just not as much transparency in that market. But as you, as you start hearing things peel back, even on what's going on in China, Evergrande, right? And they, they could have their own mini housing bubble over there that will have reverberations around the globe. And, and so there's two elements of that. A lot, there, there's been a lot of growth in that economy, and, and that, that growth has helped businesses around the world that are serving that. Um, but they're also a major supplier here. So China is something... I, Maybe it dissipates. Maybe the government steps in. I, I don't know, but I, I agree with you. that. And I said it earlier, that is one of the clouds on the horizon out there. Rob, going forward, what are some of the sectors that you envision being quite active from an M&A perspective? 
Yeah, I think you know, I think the sectors that maybe have more secular growth and cyclical growth are going to continue to see high levels of activity. And I think the two in our business that we see probably the most secular growth in are technology and healthcare. Um, and I think there's certain aspects of the business service um, uh, economy that also support those areas that are also going to see a lot of growth. But I think if I think of the two highest growth groups we're going to see this year, um, it's technology and healthcare, and then certain sectors of services. Yeah, I mean, healthcare seems to be changing so rapidly. It, it, just, just the idea that we developed a vaccine within a year, and then um, that's had reverberations for other medicines that we now expect to be able to um, come out with. The question is um, one of paying for it, right? And inflation is that? I mean, clearly that's a cloud for for investors. But is that um, does that tie in at all to the way you look at global M and A inflation? Yeah, I, I think it does, and, I, and again, I think it's a hard one to predict because, as I said, I, I, you have executives uh, throughout the world, uh, and I look at myself, right? I've been doing this for 30 years. I've never really had to deal with uh, well, how does inflation affect our clients? How does it affect our business? So I think if we see a spike in inflation that we haven't seen before, I think what you're going to see is a pause, and that pause is going to first be driven by business performance, right? Because if if it's affecting inputs and people can't pass it on to customers or clients, what does that mean for profitability or or vice versa, right? If they're if they're seeing inflation in their prices and yet their inputs aren't, and they're having they're having what may be viewed as unsustainable um, profits, how does that affect it? So I think I think how inflation is ultimately going to affect business performance. Uh, is going to drive how do investors think about it? But yeah, and to be clear, we're not drive. we're not there yet, Rob. Right? But but no. this <laughs> is the kind of the visibility issue that I was touching on before. It's just uh, it's a little bit foggy right now. It, it, it is, and interestingly, you know, I think what ultimately make what ultimately drive this inflation is you know the central governments have pumped you know twenty plus trillion dollars into the global economy. So there's an awash of capital. Consumers have money in their pockets. Businesses have money in their pockets, and so we're in an economy where where in a lot of areas it's not a demand issue, it's a supply, right? And when demand exceeds supply, you see inflation. And so um, the flip side of that is I think a lot of the really strong performance of businesses coming out of, uh, of, of the pandemic has been a result of a lot of money being pumped into the economy. So there's been a benefit of it. But, you know, as you know, that people want that Goldilocks not too, not too overheated, not too cold. And there's some signs that we could be moving towards overheated. Hey, Rob, you know, when I think about M and A, I think it is reflection of confidence, confidence on the board, on the part of board of directors, and on, uh, you know, the CEOs of the world. And you know, so when I hear about these incredible M and A results from the big investment banks over the last really eighteen months, I'm like, how can they have confidence given what's going on in the world here? Do you think this M and A boom has just been primarily driven by liquidity, as you were talking about? I, th- I think liquidity is a big, big chunk of it. Um, but I also think you're right. I mean, M&A, you have to have confidence. You have to have confidence in your own business first before you're going to go out and pay and buy another business if you think of a corporate CEO. So I-, I agree with you. But I think there's also, as you look at where the stock market is and the expectations for growth in a lot of these big companies, they're looking at their businesses and saying, I can't meet those growth expectations organically. I have to go buy. So part of it's confidence. Part of it is is growth expectations and the need to supplement organic growth with acquisition growth to meet the expectation of public company investors. All right, Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and perspective on the 
Red hot M&A market. Boy, putting up some major numbers across Wall Street. Rob Brown, global CEO for Lincoln International. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Wow, the markets continue to rip here. We have green on the screen. Let's get some color on what's going on out there. We welcome Bloomberg Markets reporter Kriti Gupta. Kriti, what do you got for us? You know, I think all the action is in the bond market. It's really going to be about those break-evens, about uh, oh, really what you're seeing in boons. I mean, you've seen the market so overheated. I mean, if you're really looking at any asset class, everyone says, you know, the bond market is really the place to look at for what comes next. And that's what you saw really this month, inflation expectations soaring until today, a little yeah. bit of a pullback in break-evens. And then on top of that, you've got a, a completely separate issue, which is what's going on overseas at the ECB with the euro spiking. And a lot of this has to do with simply the market being super short on euros. And then uh, Madame Lagarde, President Lagarde of the ECB, not really pushing back on pricing. So By the way, Critty, I've been I've been pointing this out with my, I have a chart um, that I've been uh, watching for the last few days, comparing the move index to the VIX. And all the action is in bonds. All of the action is in bonds, as our colleague Vince Signorella puts it. It is all over the place, and no one can follow it, because that's really what's happening. You're trying to price in something. You're forcing in a narrative here that the Fed and the BOE and the ECB, they're ready to hike, on top of the fact that, wait, they're not actually hiking because they're still sticking to that transitory narrative. So there's a lot going on, a lot of push and pull. And ultimately, I hate to say this because this is like the ultimate cliche, but you do start to see a little bit of technicals come in because when you have these extreme moves, at some point you have to pull back a little bit. And that's where you're seeing the break-evens do exactly that. Is there the risk that the Fed is falling behind a little bit? Here we've seen some other central banks, um, most recently, I guess, Canada, raise rates is that is that coming into the marketplace yeah i mean i i would agree with that it does seem like the fed i mean this is where you have to kind of take the bond market with a little bit of a grain of salt because there is so many different factors going on right now. You have the tips market, which is uh, you know, very Fed involved, but you also have this huge sell-off in the tips market. Then you have this idea that, well, maybe you start to see Chairman Powell, even Madame Lagarde say, well, we're aware of these inflationary pressures. We might see them stick around, but we're still mm. not changing our policy framework just yet. So there, well, there is that sentiment, Paul. Check out, do you have a terminal in front of you, Critty? I have a terminal. She in front does. Of me. She's here in a G, Bloomberg G hashtag BTV one two eight seven. G hashtag BTV one two eight seven. And you can see the one year implied policy rates. You've got the BOE in white, the Fed in yellow, and the ECB in blue. Fun fact, I made uh, this chart. No, you did? <laughs> I did. I did. Our producer Boy, what a great you. chart. Uh, but so thank you I've, for using it. <laughs> well, I've been using it today, looking at it today because um, we had a viewer write in, I think early this morning or maybe yesterday. I can never remember what day it is. But uh, saying, look, if we see Chinese growth really disappointing, below 5% next year, can you really be in a situation where the Fed or any major central bank starts to raise rates like that? 
I think it's a great question because at the ultimate, at the end of the day, uh, that's really where all the, uh, where the growth is happening, where the extreme growth is happening, where a lot of the commodity demand is coming from. So I think that's a great question to ask. I don't have the answer to that, sadly, but I think there's, uh, there used to be a phrase and, and forgive the, uh, reference to to health issues, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment. But there used to be a phrase that when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Um, yeah. And uh, if you really replace that idea with, with China in the regard that what happens in China starts to affect the rest of the world, I think they're really kind of replacing it because, I mean, I like to look at history in these examples, but in 2009, it was actually China and their massive fiscal package yep. that helped create yep. the commodity demand and inflation. And right now, they don't have that same... That's right. We don't uh, have that now. That same you, could, you could go yeah. so many places with that phrase now, right? <laughs> you got to be careful with how you phrase it, but I mean, it's, it's an important When there's one. a security <laughs> leak at a lab... <laughs> The rest of the world shuts down their economy. Exactly. Also, also true. Uh, yeah. All right. Kriti, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate Kriti Gupta, our markets reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.